Welcome to Horses and Bayonets, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical and security developments. I am lucky enough to be joined in today's episode, the pilot episode, by a good friend of mine, Andrea Tumler. Andrea is a Western Hemisphere analyst in the US government, focusing on security trends in Latin America. Prior to this, she has spent time in Colombia researching the impact of the peace process on gender relations. I would like to specify that all the views expressed today are her own and not the US government's. In today's episode, we discuss how a reading of the state-building literature can inform analysis of counter-gang operations in Latin America. We discuss recent trends, the impact of COVID, and the futility of what appear surface-level government operations. Thank you so much for joining, Andrea. Thanks so much, James. Glad to be here. So I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about a recent development in Latin America that saw the arrest of over 700 gang members. Um, It was part of Operational Regional Shield, which was carried out across the Northern Triangle states. So that's El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras with the support of the U.S. Those arrested were paraded through the streets and international media has been relatively supportive of the move. But you had some reservations about it. Absolutely. So my first concern, obviously, is that um, the human rights are being violated in this particular instance. We see a lot of pictures out of El Salvador where hundreds of alleged gang members are shackled to one another, um, very close quarters, no masks at a time when we know that the pandemic is really running rampant through prisons. Um, So even though there is a need to enforce laws you don't really need to be violating human rights to do it. But I think more fundamentally, what you and I were talking about when we are discussing our concerns is that this isn't addressing the root of the issue. Often this gang violence and the criminal, the illicit criminal economies that drive people into gangs um, and provide the funding for gangs are actually a result of economic mismanagement, a lack of economic opportunity for average people in El Salvador, Um, and an overall lack of development. And so I think by criminalizing gang activity without looking at the drivers of what brings people into these gangs, you're never really going to address the problem and it will keep perpetuating. I think as a final concern with El Salvador particularly, we're also seeing reports that the President Bukele has actually come to several kind of behind closed doors agreements with a lot of the gang leaders. We've seen a recent drop in homicides And a lot of people think that's because there's very good evidence that Bukele has agreed to work with the gangs behind the scenes, despite putting up this very public media focused, um, harsh crackdown on the more low level, um, you know, every everyday gang member while negotiating with the high level members at the same time. And I think this raises a lot of issues theoretically that I know you wanted to get into about what it means when we have the state and gangs sort of being intertwined and governing together or governing in tandem while pretending to be in opposition to one another. Right. It it kind of seems, uh, especially with what a lot of what you're talking about with the developmental opportunities, that what we're getting at here is is kind of the fundamentals of what it means to be a state um, and I guess the, the reach of the state. Yes, absolutely. Um, in, in two parts. One is that a lot of a lot of criminal activity does happen because the state isn't fulfilling its end of the social contract of supporting an environment in which legitimate economic opportunity exists. Um, but secondarily, also that 
um, we see here this sort of hypocrisy at a state level where it's simultaneously criminalizing this gang activity and being really harsh to low-level members while sort of turning a blind eye to, if not relying on the effectiveness of the gang in some areas of El Salvador to be able to enforce El Salvador's other rules, you know, enforce um, public health protocols and it, and really relying on the gangs to act as a sort of para-state. So that reminds me a lot of Charles Tilly, who became famous for his aphorism that war made the state and the state made war. Um, a completely oversimplified version of his argument is that state European state formation came about as a byproduct of feudal lords extracting resources in order to support armies that would consolidate the territorial gains that they'd made and need to further expansion. But there are two specifically interesting aspects for a discussion of gangs in Latin America regarding the role that organized crime takes, right? So firstly, he says that war-making and state-making can be seen along a continuum that includes piracy, banditry, and other organized criminal activities. Um, and in large part, this is because they can all be seen in a way as a protection racket. Um, and as a result, he emphasizes this exchange of protection and extraction in the form of taxes that becomes central to what a state is. Secondly, he says that criminal groups helped make the modern nation state um, through the hiring of mercenaries, right, who could be relied on to maintain peace in the regions where the state hadn't fully consolidated control, nor the ability to exert legitimate violence. So, yes, I totally agree. And I think that when you begin to look and think about state making as a very elaborate form of almost a, a racketeering gig, as you were saying, um, it reminds me, I, th I think you can go places with that sort of theory and begin to really probe what the role of the state actually is. So it reminds me of a, of a quote that I've pulled up here from a, a Raymakers 2010 article that you that you sent me. And the quote is, state protection actually qualifies as racketeering to the extent that the threats against which the state protects its citizens are largely a consequence of its own actions. And it com commonly simulates or stimulates external threats such as war and terrorism. And I think that's sort of a second, a second level to what you were talking about um, in terms of, one, how the state relies on these criminal organizations and gangs to fill in places where the state lacks um, the capacity to reach, you know, sort of acting as a parastate, but also this more, um, more conceptually how the state relies on constructing the idea of a threat that then it can require you to pay taxes for it to protect you from. And I think gangs actually fill both of these roles, which is why it's so interesting watching the very performative aspect of what President Bukele is doing in El Salvador. You know, he's not just cracking down on gangs, but he's making sure that the media sees hundreds of gang members shackled to one another. Um, he's making sure that his anti-gang rhetoric is really loud. It's very much, I think, playing into this narrative of you need to trust me as your leader because I will be strong and help protect you from this, this threat that to some extent I've I myself have orchestrated and exaggerated or enabled and actively let operate in the state because I can't govern without it. And I think that tension there is really interesting and is especially salient in El Salvador right now. 
So where Tilly said that states have to be able to provide security in return for extraction, it actually seems that throughout a lot of the Northern Triangle and other areas of Latin America, gangs serve that function. Yes. And at the same time, they're providing a justification for governments to make the case that they need to expand their police force. They need to raise more revenue to invest in strong internal security forces, and they need to crack down on gangs and they're using they're using the gang's presence as a, as an excuse to justify their own existence to protect you the average citizen from the threat of the gang. Right, that's a fascinating point and I guess if the state requires the gangs in a certain way as like justification um it explains to some extent why the gangs have been able to create these regions that just almost appear as parallel states. Um and as a result we're left with this really perverse dynamic whereby even though gangs do cause an exorbitant amount of violence when the major gangs are weakened we actually see an increase in violence as the stability that they had been able to provide subsides and smaller organizations and gangs start to battle for control absolutely i know in mexico after um, el chapo was arrested he was the head of the sinaloa cartel um, which previously had had territorial control over a lot of, I believe, Western Mexico. And and so the Sinaloa cartel really had a monopoly on violence and power in those areas. But after El Chapo was arrested, Sinaloa itself split into two sort of rival factions. And then other gangs, such as the CJNG, began to challenge it for um, territorial control. And homicide rates spiked. So we actually see that although gang control over a territory isn't ideal, if what you're working to avoid, right, is collateral damage and, um, you know, danger to like an average citizen, there were a lot more people killed on accident because of infighting when there wasn't a monopoly of power. Um, so that this fracturing is not not great for overall citizen security. So this seems like a good place to bring in a little more of the recent developments as context. Could you describe some of the trends that we've been witnessing um, in relation to gangs in Latin America just prior to COVID-19? Sure. So there were a couple a couple trends that we were sort of seeing beginning to play out um, prior to COVID. The first one that I referred to was this splintering of gangs and the increased infighting between them. Um, so a key example that I did just go over was Mexico, but I think another interesting case of this happened in Colombia. So in 2016, the major criminal organization, the FARC, um, I just want to caveat that the FARC was also a, a left-wing guerrilla movement that then became more involved in illicit economies and illicit trafficking throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. So, th so they sort of, they straddle a dual role there. But I think for this purpose, they really did they can be referred to as a gang because they very much controlled through violence, a lot of territory and a lot of illicit economies going through those territories. Um, but they agreed to demobilize in 2016. And in doing so, we've actually seen, unfortunately, an increase in violence in Colombia over the last several years. And a lot of this is because that previously when where the FARC had controlled territory, they no longer control this territory. And so other criminal organizations are competing with one another to gain control over this. And this is causing spikes in violence. We also saw a lot of um, the FARC members who refused to demobilize 
splintered into a bunch of smaller fronts that are a lot less ideologically motivated and operate a lot more like purely trafficking organizations. And they're competing with one another. So beforehand, they they were all under the FARC umbrella, sort of under a centralized command. And now there's absolutely a vacuum of power that's leading to a lot of infighting and a lot of smaller criminal groups increasing their violence. That seems like a depressingly accurate depiction of Tilly's discussion of state formation, right? So where the role of the state is to provide security and stability within a given territory, um, its absence creates a vacuum that can lead to deadly competition for control. So really without the state actually filling the gap that's been left behind by the demobilization of a gang, we're not getting to the root of the problem. So initiatives like Operation Regional Shield may actually exacerbate violence. I absolutely agree. I think that really at the Gosh, well, there's many cores of Colombia's problems, but I think that one of the cores is state absence and the fact that um, really, really the history of all of the guerrilla groups and the paramilitary groups that were fighting themselves, fighting one another for the last 60 years um, really was rooted in a very Tillian contestation for power over the legislature. Almost all of the armed groups can be traced back to a, a conflict from 1948 to 1958, um, where a bunch of senators basically all wanted to control the legislature and were fighting one another and hired private defense forces. Um, so the, the, the development of criminal gangs in Colombia is very much rooted in the process of state making. Right. Okay. So then how, how has COVID-19 impacted gangs operating in, um, in in both Central and South America? Ah, so this is where it gets really interesting with regards to what services the state is um, able to provide. And I think that's because the, the major story coming out of this year really is that it's the criminal gangs in almost all of these countries that took up the mantle of a COVID response that governments were unable or unwilling to unwilling to do. Can you give some good examples of that? So in the Northern Triangle, we saw instances where gangs were uh, working with governments to enforce lockdowns so that they didn't have to have police presence in their neighborhoods. And I, I think in this case, everyone benefited from having the gangs as police forces to really help enforce the government's laws. In Mexico, we also saw some of the larger gangs handing out food and soap to people in their territory. And this also happened with a lot of the gangs in Rio and Brazil, where the major gangs were hanging, handing out soap to people in favelas. In Colombia, there were smaller criminal organizations that were actually murdering people who were violating lockdowns, um, that, and these lockdowns were being enforced by the gangs. So obviously, this was pretty violent and pretty unpopular. But on, on the other hand, it was an effective way of enforcing public health measures. So really, what we see in all of these countries across the region is that the state was lacking the capacity, the legitimacy. And I think, especially in Brazil, it was lacking the political will to do what it needed to do to keep its citizens safe from the pandemic. And what ended up happening was that gangs have stepped into this void and have been using it as a ploy to gain legitimacy, both in part because it looks really good for them if they're able to provide soap and food for a desperate situation. Like, for example, when Barrio 18, one of the gangs in Honduras and El Salvador, said that they would temporarily suspend a lot of their extortion rackets where while people were unemployed. So it was a really good PR move. But in a more practical sense, if states step in, sorry, if, if gangs step in and act where the state isn't able to, it actually keeps the state out of the gang's business and really allows these gangs to control the, the territory more completely. 
So I guess it seems like from what you're describing there that COVID-19 has allowed gangs to consolidate these Tillian gains. But a lot of these gangs rely on things like transportation of goods, of drugs, um, and extortion. In light of COVID-19 and economies coming to a standstill globally, have there been any negative effects on gangs? But I think just as we've seen the impacts of COVID-19 on the legitimate formal economy being very good for a lot of very large corporations who are able to overcome interruptions to their supply chain. So, for example, um, Amazon has just made massive profits of everyone you know, ordering packages from home because they don't want to go to the store. We see that the larger organizations were absolute, the larger criminal organizations were able to adapt really quickly and get around a lot of the barriers. Um, so for example, when all of the borders closed down, we expected to see a huge drop in the drugs that were coming into the United States, for example. Um, and while there was a short initial drop, really the, the level of cocaine interdictions has stayed pretty constant throughout the pandemic. And it's because the larger organizations have the resources and have the brain power to to switch over how they're how they're making a lot of their profit. You know, now they're um, engaging in criminal economies around distributing um, PPE, for example. You know, there, you can make a lot of money with false COVID nineteen cures as well. Um, and also, if you have a lot of economic resources, you have a lot more options for how you're going to get drugs across closed borders. On the other hand, as I mentioned, that there were a lot of there was a trend towards the increased fractionalization of the gangs prior to COVID-19. This ended up weeding out a lot of the smaller gangs that just didn't have the capacity to adjust. You know, they had one supply route that was then closed when the borders were closed and they weren't able to, they weren't able to switch their operations quickly enough. And so it's had somewhat of a bottleneck effect on weeding out the weaker groups while strengthening the stronger groups, much as it has in the in the legal economy with small businesses hurting while large businesses are if anything growing hmm. so in a way it seems like COVID 19 is reversing some of the splitting that we saw in the past few years in the gangs um and that those who remain are actually even stronger so something like bukele's arrest of these gang members um actually seems a bit more bark than bite Right. I mean, I don't want to say that Bukele's arrest of these gang members doesn't have bite, you know, because that's very impactful to those gang members and their human rights and their families' rights and also the spread of the virus um, in a relatively small country. But I think that if what your actual goal is, is counteracting the impact and the legitimacy of these gangs, rather than sort of running operations where you're just arresting people where that that ends up being somewhat whack-a-mole. If, if it were up to me, I think that a more effective set of government policies would really look to these root causes of crime, um, how to better strengthen state presence in areas where it hasn't always had a lot of capacity. And this has to happen legitimacy, not just by sending in like corrupt police forces. Um, you also have to look at the economic drivers of gang violence and provide economic opportunity and education. And I know it's hard and a place where there just isn't a lot of state revenue and pretty weak economies. So I understand the challenges, but I, I, I agree with your assessment that just sting operations aren't really sufficient for addressing a problem that's rooted in state absence. 
Right. So one solution, or at least part of the solution um, proposed by the International Crisis Group um, in a report that they published not too long ago, um, is essentially they, they call on COVID-19 relief aid to be targeted to areas where the state has historically been unable to provide social welfare, um, which may go some way towards replacing um, gangs as the primary social actor. could not agree more. So that mirrors something that the Brookings Institute's Van der Felbaard Brown said, which is that we need to stop viewing crime as this thing that needs to be suppressed, but actually in a more Tillian light as something that forces competition for the provision of goods and protection. Yes, I agree. And that reminds me of an article in Insight Crime written by Stephen Dudley um, about really the impact of COVID-19 on gangs and state making. And he makes a very compelling case that to some extent working with these gangs is an inevitability. Um, As you were saying, there's sort of the option of continuing to hit our heads against a wall and trying to criminalize it, um, but never actually regaining regaining the territory, or sort of recognizing, as Vonda Felbab Brown says, that there will always be some degree of criminality, and to some extent, the state isn't capable of operating in these in far-flung areas right now, and the options are either fighting or cooperating with the gangs. But I think even if that is to some extent inevitable, I think there are better and worse ways to do it. So I just want to throw out a little bit of caution. When we were talking at the beginning about what happened in El Salvador, where Bukele was simultaneously criminalizing the low-level gang members while making backroom deals with the high-level gang leaders, I think that is particularly dangerous, anti-democratic, and really unpopular among the people. And that's because it allows the criminal organizations to have um, a lot of leverage over the heads of the legitimately elected government. So for example, the gangs really at any point can withdraw their support from Bukele and can continue to use that as a threat to leverage more and more concessions from the government. On the other hand, some smaller scale um, or better thought out policies that really look to where the gangs are providing state capacity in a way that the state isn't able to, um, you know, such as looking at where and how to release certain gang members um, to move away from a highly criminalized state. I think that's both inevitable and desirable because it really right now is an untenable situation or if you continue to just try to arrest people en masse, you're never going to address the problem. Are there any good examples of that at the moment? I can't think of any specific examples of, you know, responsible prisoner releases, it may or may not have happened. I'm not an expert on this extent of the policy, but I think a good model that we could go towards is something closer to what Colombia has done with a lot of its transitional justice processes. Um, In the case of Colombia, because so much of the organized criminal activity and the criminal economies was intricately linked with a lot of the political opposition and the guerrilla warfare, rather than having a lot of that legislative process go through what we think of as, you know, a criminal justice system, it gets sent through its transitional justice system that has more of a look to reintegration into society, to building economic opportunity, um, 
and to really look at root causes of crime. Now, Colombia is obviously not perfect. As I've said, they are seeing an increase in crime because of the fact that their peace accord didn't properly demobilize all of the FARC leaders and led to a vacuum of power. But I do think that that somewhat more redistributive and look to reconciliation rather than just punitive punishments is something that there's a lot of literature on in peace processes, but a lot less literature on um, when you look to when you look at gang violence, when in reality, the two issues might not be quite as far apart as they are treated. Could not agree more. Um, well, we have a couple minutes left. Um, are there any points that you want to emphasize in closing? Absolutely. So I think in conclusion, really what COVID-19 has done is brought a lot of underlying issues out into the open. And that's particularly obvious when we look at how it has enabled these gangs to, especially the large gangs, to expand their power and really act in parallel to and in competition with the state. I think this was always a dynamic, though, and if anything, perhaps an opportunity in having this as such a such an existential issue right now and so out in the open, not hiding behind any political rhetoric where it might have previously been swept under the rug, I think is that it gives us an opportunity to really reassess how we deal with criminal activity and criminal gangs um, and how we how we approach a lot of our anti-gang police operations. And by we, I mean both the United States, um, a lot of European partners supporting Central American countries, and governments and populations within South and Central America. I think if we really look at Tilly and use that state making as war making as a framework, we can sort of more clearly identify what role the gangs are playing and how we can work within a system where they will inevitably have some role to come to a better solution for, you know, for, for the people of El Salvador and of South and Central America. I think as a final point and why just simply criminalizing gang activity isn't going to work um, is that if anything, this is showing the futility of simply criminalizing activities and criminalizing the people who engage in those activities without addressing the underlying factors of why people are driven into criminal economies and why those criminal economies can continue to exist where the state is absent. Um, so I think as part of a COVID-19 rebuilding effort, any effort really has to look at these underlying causes, um, look at it from a more developmental human rights perspective instead of just assuming that because gangs are involved, it has to be dealt with through a security apparatus. And really look towards alternative forms of policing and of justice that don't just repeat a cycle of criminalizing individuals without addressing structural issues. A comprehensive solution to a complex problem. There is a lot to think about there and thank you so much for your insight and time. Thanks so much, James. This was great.